I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians again. It's our last sermon in the book of Colossians. I'm going to try and wrap it up with uh, three of the major themes coming out of that book. And we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 as our theme verse. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. Now, just looking up for next week, um, we're going to do the book of Philemon, seeing as we're in that whole setting, we might as well do the book of Philemon in one Sunday, um, but it's not that bad. I'm going to be looking at the theme of what does Christian love looks, look like in practice, as we look at the relationship between Philemon and the slave that he owned. And so that's next week, and I'd ask you, of giving your homework right up ahead, I'll ask you to read through the book of Philemon. There are 25 verses. That's it. Um, so have a look at that for next week. If you could do that, it saves us from reading all 25 in the service. And um, I can look at the theme verses coming out. So Philemon for next week. Today, Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 is a theme verse. And he, that is Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now the opposite of that is found in the book of Judges, chapter 17, verse 6. In that day, Israel had no king. Every man did what seemed right in his own eyes. We're going to be looking at these contradictory or opposite themes as we sum up Colossians. Now for those of you, I know there are a few naval people here, nautical, boats, all that type of thing. Captain Pete sitting here among us. There was a guy called Michael Plant uh, who's an American yachtsman and he attempted a solo transatlantic crossing from the USA to France in the autumn of 1992. He had this beautiful yacht called the Coyote, and it had all the latest, for 1992, it had all the latest sailing equipment and fittings on it. It had a hull made up of the latest and finest materials, finely engineered. It had, for the day, sophisticated electronics, which included satellite tracking, and for 1992, that was something. Only the FBI had that at that stage. And... Michael himself was an experienced sailor. He had the necessary training, expertise, experience. He knew how to use his equipment. And it all added up to him making a successful crossing. Eleven days into the voyage, radio contact was lost with a coyote. And the initial radio um, silence wasn't a big worry because um, major storms had been predicted in the area he would be um, going through. And so they knew he would probably be real busy and no time to communicate on the radio. And he was also known as quite an independent sailor. He liked his time on his own. But after a few days with no contact at all, as is convention at sea, a search party was launched. It was true that Michael had encountered rough seas and stormy weather and actually a severe storm. But that shouldn't have been a problem because the design of the coyote included a 3.6 ton weight called a ballast bulb right at the bottom of the keel, attached to the keel, and that should have kept it hull down in the water through any waves 
It should have righted itself all the time. However, when they found the yacht, and they did find it, and I think there's a photo there. Next one. Next one. There's the ballast bulb. So there's a photo of the, bulb, of the yacht. When they found it, they found it was upside down. And what had happened was the ballast bulb had broken loose through defective engineering. And the whole yacht had become unstable. And it only took one large wave to turn it upside down. And that's tragic irony in that, isn't it? Because millions of dollars in state-of-the-art equipment, the most experienced sailor at the helm, was all for nothing because of a problem that occurred below the surface where it's imperative. That all the satellite tracking in the world couldn't fix. It's very similar to our faith today. It's not a perfect example, all right? But it's very similar to our faith today. Your faith and mine can look legitimate on the outside, above the waterline. But if that very same faith is not securely bolted in and to Jesus Christ, then we live a life of religion. And religion will turn belly up before God's eye on the day of judgment. Jesus himself made this clear. John 14 verse 6, he said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that's the first statement. Where is Jesus Christ in your life? Is he at core and center of your life? Second statement is, how does what you know of Jesus Christ change the way you actually live on the ground every day? Is Jesus Christ at the very center of your everyday existence with all the multi-activities that happen in your life? Is your faith securely bolted to and in the person of Jesus Christ in practice? You see, the church at Colossae that we've been studying these last few couple of months, was under attack by false teachers and Judaizers. What were they doing? They were proposing a faith based on works and religious activity. They were seeking to diminish the person of Jesus Christ, make him less than who he was and is. And they were trying in his place to put an imitation Jesus, in today we'd say a plastic Jesus, And very soon these Colossian believers came to believe those lies and they were starting to drift in their understanding, firstly, of the person of who Jesus Christ is and secondly, how they were to worship Him in practice because the two are related. And so that is what the Apostle Paul is addressing in the book of Colossians. He is addressing their Christology. I'm going to use a few ology words today. A wrong view of Christ or a right view of Christ. A Christology. Who is Christ? They had a wrong Christology and a wrong Christology was leading to wrong lifestyles and wrong worship before God. And so Epaphras, 
the one who's the pastor of this church, is so concerned that he travels up to Rome to where Paul is in prison in Rome. And he takes his concerns to Paul and he goes and asks Paul for advice on how to deal with the situation. And so the Apostle Paul writes the letter to the Colossians addressing these issues. And he writes a letter not just to the Colossians, but also to the two churches just in the neighborhood, the Laodicean church and the church at Hierapolis. And he says, I want you three churches to read this letter, to circulate it among you, and then to try and have a correct Christology again. And that will straighten out your thinking. So, summary, a correct view of Jesus Christ will lead to proper worship of Jesus Christ and proper living before Him. It's imperative you know who Jesus is. And that's why the book of Colossians is so important to you and I today. Because this is what's been under attack. The personhood of Jesus Christ. He says He's God. He tells us how to live. And yet, society and liberal theology says, this is what we say you are to do. This is who we say Jesus Christ is. This is what we say about sin. And the two don't marry. And so we need to know who Jesus Christ is. Our Christology is to be right. And if we have a, a right Christology, if we know who Jesus Christ is, it will serve as an antidote to heresy and wrong thinking, which is all around us and through our churches today. It will help us to live in a Christ-like way in our personal lives, in our home lives, in our church life, and in our lives in society, which the book has addressed. And you'll appreciate I can't go through all those things again today, so we're going to be looking at very specific things. So the first remedy that the Apostle Paul puts forward to these three churches and to us today is this one. Jesus Christ is everything. If He's not everything, there's a problem in our lives. He is everything. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. Read these verses through with me. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His, cro of his cross. Now I can't go into that whole passage. We've looked at those passages. But I want to highlight a few things from this text. Firstly, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Simply put, if you want to know what God looks like, then look at Jesus and see what He's like. He's the visible image of God. John chapter 14 verse 9, Jesus says to Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. 
you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He's an exact image of God. There's no difference in the essence, the character, and the nature of, God, of Jesus to God. They're no different. Jesus is not like God. Not created by God, as the J-Dubs will tell you today. Jesus is God. It's imperative. If you see Jesus, you see God. How do we see Jesus? He's not walking around anymore. Yes, he's here amongst us, but he's not visible, is he? How do we see Jesus? Through his word. Go and study the word. You will see Jesus bright as day before your mind's eye. Because your soul will show you. See Jesus in his word. We need to be reading his word. And the reason we are not seeing Jesus, and the, and the reason liberal theologians are not seeing Jesus as he is, is because they're not reading his word as they should. They are adding to and subtracting from who Jesus is, the real Jesus. They are creating an imitation plastic Jesus. And that's why we end up with a lot of theology where it is today. Detracting people, leading them away from the truth, exactly what the Judaizers would do. And the false teachers. Second thing is this. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all creation. That's why we have to have people like creation ministries come here. To re-emphasize that to us as believers. Because we're being taught differently in society. If you believe in creation, you're a dinosaur, society will say. Get real. You see, Jesus is not a creation. He was not made by someone else. Or, he's not a creation of the Christian imagination, as many atheists accuse us of. He is the creator of everything that exists and everything that has ever existed and will exist. He is the creator. Everything animate and inanimate. He pre-existed before anything else existed. He was there. And not just that. Jesus Christ sustains all things. He keeps everything going. So that everything doesn't just collapse into a pile of nothing. Which is an impossibility. Jesus is the creator and sustainer, not just of all things physical, but of all spiritual life. We looked at these things. He brings new life through regeneration. What does the re word regeneration mean? New birth. He gives new birth. He gives life where there was only death. He brought about redemption. I told you I'm using a few words today. What does redemption mean? He paid the price for sin. Before God, by giving his own life as the lamb, the sin payment. His blood flowed to pay for sin and to bring about forgiveness for personal sin for you and me. He took away our state of sinfulness before him and brought us into a right relationship with God. Reconciliation is the word. He reconciled us with God. You see, that's the real Jesus. 
No spiritual life is found outside of Him through any other means, through any other way, through any other philosophy or religion or way of living. It doesn't matter what atheism, dualism, pantheism, Mormonism and secularism might say. There is only one way to God through Jesus Christ. This is the real Jesus that Colossians is pointing to. If you know Him, you will know God. He gives life and He is life. I hope that's clear. And therefore, Christ alone is to be worshipped. We shouldn't be worshipping anyone or anything else. Only Jesus Christ. He is to be the one who is at the core of our lives. And everything, because everything was created for Him, says that text. And as believers, therefore, Jesus is to be everything to us. Lord, be my vision. Supreme in my heart, whether that's in my wants, my plans, my desires. Lord, you be first. Be everything, Lord. Secondly, this is the second remedy that the Apostle Paul brings to the Colossian church. My life is defined by God, not me. God defines life and my life, not me. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 10. This is the text. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And, and, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And then the text carries on. Now, you really need to be listening to this because if you don't understand what I'm going to say now, this is what is pulling so many young people away from the church, away from Christianity. We see so many young, and I'm not anti-millennials, there are so many young millennials being pulled away from Christianity to a life without Christ. Or a life which they think is with Christ, but it isn't. So you see, what does it mean to be a Christian? According to the scripture here, it's more than just a belief in a creed, a belief statement. Christianity is more than just a moment of faith. Once in my life, sometime, I gave my heart to Jesus. It's more than just a public confession of faith in a pool of baptism. It's more than that. Christianity is a way of life. You become a Christ follower. That means step by step. Jesus said it this way, John 15, 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's not a one-off thing. That's a day-by-day -day. keep my commandments. In every aspect of your lives, keep my commandments if you love me. You see, the false teachers and the Judaizers were attempting to define what a good life means. They were attempting to say what true worship means. They were attempting to say what the true Christian life should look like. 
And they said it's through keeping of rules, keeping of feasts, religious traditions. That's how you live a real Christian life. However, God's ways are very different from our ways, aren't they? Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 to this. You should all know these off by heart. I quote these words so often. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God's standards of holiness are way higher than anything we can ever attempt to do or think on our own. Now, here's the crunch. I can't just live life my way and define what I mean by a good life. That's what Colossians teaches. What do I mean by that? Who tells us what a good life is today? Society? Many atheists will tell us what a good life is. Our secular state will tell us what a good life means. A good Kiwi life. And many politicians will try and tell us what a good life is. And what it means. But you see, the Bible says God defines what good is. God defines what right is. And just because society accepts something as good doesn't make it good. You see, the problem with society is society settles for its own morally deficient, away from God's spiral of changeable standards of good. It's a downward spiral. What used to be good a few decades ago is no longer seen as good. Now it's bad. And bad is a new good. I'll give you an example soon. And society's standards will always suit society's selfish ends. Always. No matter what sugarcoating of for the community good or going forward, forward together spin they put on it. As a Christ follower, those of us who receive Him as Lord, we are to walk in Christ. We are to walk with His Spirit in us, His new nature in us. And that's to be the very foundation of our life. We are to be in Him. What does that mean? It means His desires are to shape our desires. His commands are to define the way we live. They are to set the parameters for how we live. Now I'm going to show you how that works. Anyone know what pragmatism means? Good. There's a few. Situation ethics. Anyone know what that means? All right. I'll tell you what they mean. Pragmatism, situation, ethics. Situation ethics is this. The words, the phrase says it. Situation ethics. I make up my mind about what is good and bad in a specific situation by the way I sum up that situation. In a given situation, I decide, according to what's happening here, this is good, this is bad. That's called situation ethics. Formed by what's happening around me. Whereas God's morals are set outside of a fallen human being. He says, I, as the all-existing, all-knowing God, 
say, this is right, this is wrong. My laws, my goodness, my right never changes. As a human being, yours will change constantly. So that's situation ethics. How does that influence the way we think as a society? Well, I'm going to give you three very big examples. There are many more. We've got the whole LGBTQ debate happening now about transgenderism and everything. How do we land up there? I decide what sex I'm to be. We are a, moral progressive, a morally progressive society, and we should all have the right to decide who and what we are. I define who I am, not you. No one else does. Moral relativism. Situation ethics. Pragmatism. Another example. The whole euthanasia debate we've just had. How do we land up there? You see, we feel sorry for old people. And we must. It's not easy growing older. It's tough getting old. And we see the pain in front of us. And we want, we want them not to suffer. And so we say, well, let them decide when they want to go. You see, what's happened there is we've taken the moral stand out. We're looking at the feelings. And we should. We should have compassion. But we're saying, God hasn't said when life starts and ends. God is the giver of life. We've taken the moral aspect out. Another example, especially among a lot of millennials now, in and outside the church, and that's the whole living together marriage thing. You find especially among uh, those who've been in churches, they'll start saying, and you might have experienced some of this, well, we're going to live together. Yes, we're both Christians. We're going to live together because it's, we'd rather want to just see that it all works out before we commit to each other, uh, you know, because it's better that way. There's less hurt if they teach children and everything involved. Moral pragmatism. God has said, don't live together until you're fully married before me. And then there's a second debate that happens. I can't find enough Christians around. And I really love this guy, Dad. So that's good. At least there's love in the relationship. And so they marry a non-Christian. Moral pragmatism. Situation ethics. Alive. Dad, I'll be an influence. And I'll make her a Christian. I'll pray for her, Dad. She'll become a believer. Situational ethics. God has said, let light and darkness not mix. So those are some of the examples. There are many more. The Bible says to you and I as believers, what must we do? We must love the people. We must love the people. We must show compassion. We must show mercy. But we must never stand back for the sin. I must never condone sin. Ever. Love the people, don't condone their sin. Jude chapter 1 verse 22 to 23 says this. Listen very carefully. It applies to believers and unbelievers. Have mercy on those who doubt. You've got a son or daughter who's doubting their Christian walk. Have mercy on those who doubt. 
Don't condemn them outright. Have mercy on those who doubt. Show the love of Jesus Christ to them. But that doesn't end there. It says, by snatching them out of the fire. If you see they, their lives are in danger because they're thinking wrong, speak your mind. I could give you a personal example. I'm not going to. Speak your mind. Love your children. Don't condone sin. But speak it. If you love them, tell them your house is on fire. The verse carries on. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Don't ever make sin right because you love people. You see, what are we doing when we do that? We are then redefining sin. And I'm back to my judges verse. In that day there was no king. Every man that was right in his own eyes. Don't redefine sin because of what our loved ones are doing. Love them, but never condone sin. If you don't tell them, who will tell them? Because the world won't. And so, therefore, Colossians says, guard your thinking from anything which is not according to Christ. Don't be taken in by human philosophy and empty deceit. Situation ethics is human philosophy and empty deceit. And so many in and outside the church are being sucked in by it. Don't you be one too, my friend, my brother and sister in Christ. There's a general emptiness floating around the interweb and all the humanistic, man-centered and other agenda-driven societal fads which make their frequent appearance across our social media. And people get sucked in it and swept up by it. Governments get sucked in and swept up by it. The media especially get sucked in and swept up by these fads. And they set the trends for society. And soon, the whole of society is lemming-like, racing to the bottom of that moral cliff. Man, we've seen it in the last few years. And my heart cries out for the wrong that I see. And my heart cries out for the many of our Christian young people that have walked away that are living lives by their own definition of sin. Walk your lives defined by Christ. Walked as He walked, in simple obedience, trusting God, keeping to the Father's business in front of you. Live a gospel-focused life. And that gospel focuses in on my own life first, and then it holds out that very same gospel to those around me. Gospel-focused lives. Tell them about God's story in your life. Tell your children again about God's story in your life. And pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Plead with them. Pray for them. Love them. Pray for them. As I do. Lastly, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. Have the right mindset. 
Colossians 3, 1 to 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Tell me, put up your hand if you've been raised with Christ. Right, hold your hands up. Hold, just hold it there. Hold it, hold it. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. How were the Colossians practically to start pulling away from these false teachers and what they were living and to live lives worthy of the calling to which they were called? They had to have the right mindset. A few of us have just done a motorbike course. You'll know, kind of, that's my thing now. Can't do flying, so I've got to do something exciting. Um, and one of the things they teach you when you're going around corners, and it's very important to go around a corner correctly, otherwise you tend to go off the corner. One thing they teach you is you go where you're thinking and where you're looking. If you're looking in front of the wheel, that's where you'll go. If you're looking ahead, that's where you'll go. Your body will do the rest. It will follow where your eyes are. Oh, I love that sermon illustration. Your life will follow where your eyes are. You see, so often our eyes are in the world around us, all the happenings, all the political stuff, all this trouble in the world, all the stuff, it fills our minds, and we're not looking up anymore. We're not seeing the soon-to-be-coming Jesus Christ, the one who is king. We're not seeing him anymore because the troubles of this world are filling my life. And what comes with the troubles of this world? The worries of this world. You start thinking about everything around the world, it will soon fill you with the worries and the troubles that come with those things. The excess baggage. You see, you and I are to travel light. Why? Because this is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I've got the passport of the Lamb on my life. No excess baggage allowed when I go to heaven. So why do I gather it now? Push aside those troubles. Push aside the things of the world and the worries and all those things which accumulate in our lives and look again to Christ. Renew your focus on who you're at and what you're about. Jesus Christ as Lord, number one in your life, the one who you are to listen to every single day. Have your mind focused on Him and the way you're to live before Him. Have the correct mindset. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Don't be distracted so quickly. I'm speaking to you and me. Mindset is everything. Lift your eyes. See Jesus in His glory. Let's not get so absorbed by the busyness and the urgent that our agendas in life every day are taken over by those things. See Jesus. You see, if we don't see Jesus, these other things push him off stage and something else takes his place. And what have I got in my life? A God. And what does God say about other gods? Don't worship other gods. I am the only God. Serve me. Why is this important? I'll tell you why it's important. One sentence. You were dead before you died in Christ. 
Think about it. You were stone dead, cold dead before you died in Christ. Without Christ, you had no hope at all of hope into eternity. But then Christ came and you died in Him, through Him, to sin. Why? So that He could give you a brand new nature which has life and hope. Hold to Him. Worship Him. Christ alone, number one. Why would you turn back to any other God or thing in exchange for Jesus Christ? And therefore, my brother and sister, the book of Colossians says to you this morning, keep your faith securely bolted to and in the real Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you have no chance of completing this journey on this earth because without Christ in all, your life is only a life of religion. And religion turns belly up before the gaze of an all-seeing and holy God. And so the call of Colossians in one sentence is this. Don't redefine Jesus. And don't redefine sin. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What does the Lord say to the church at Wanganui East? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his church. So be it, Lord. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the book of Colossians that you sent so that we could know how we are to live before you, the true God. So that we would be warned not to redefine sin and make it suit our own agendas. Lord, where the whole of society is turning against these things, Help us to stand clear and strong and determined and in the minority for now so that we can be a light in this dark world. Lord, keep these realities before our eyes as we pray for our children, our family members, our friends, our colleagues, for those who once walked with you, for those who don't want anything more to do with church. Help us to pray for legislators as they set up laws this year. Help us to pray for our government as it sets the trend for a whole country. May we pray, Lord, that you would be preeminent again but Lord start with us in our very own lives may you be preeminent there in my day-to-day -day life as we serve our families as we love each other in this church as we are salt and light in this community Christ preeminent 
So help us, Lord, through your Spirit. Amen.